Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in an unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented time where your individual liberties are being handed over in the name of a government safety net or for the common good. You're tired of being told what you're allowed to say, how to live your life, or how to raise your kids. And so are we. We are the Break the Bell Podcast, and we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. Join us weekly as we invade your ear holes with all the insanity that's going on in the world and expose the corrupt system that is hell-bent on keeping the power from you. You can check out Break the Bell every Monday night, streaming live on YouTube, or listen wherever you can find podcasts. Check out Break the Bell, and most importantly, never stop talking. Check this Tuesday night live streams are back at least for the next four weeks while I don't have to work on Tuesday nights. And tonight I have a very special guest, David Brady. Uh, David, introduce yourself a little bit and kind of tell what you've got. I know you have your own show, uh, The Road to Providence. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. And then we're going to get into the, uh, the story that you were telling me before we got started and going to have that kind of lead the show off. All right. Um, hello, Justin. I'm glad to be here first off. Um, who am I? I am just a young libertarian, a Mises Caucus libertarian who kind of hopped in to the like liberty movement as best as I can. I think I and then I just decided, hey, why not start a podcast? So I started my my show, The Road to Providence, where I do like a Sunday special where I interview people in like more long form interviews where it's just like just about getting to know them. And then I also have my live show that I try to do whenever I can. It depends because, again, I'm balancing my education with doing a podcast and working because, you know, I got to balance things. So I try to do the live show as much as possible. Uh, the Road to Providence, again, that's just that's that's what I've got going on. I'm just a young libertarian with a podcast who likes to talk about like economics and like foreign policy that's just who i am i guess i mean that's that's par for the course if you're going to be a true libertarian you have to have a podcast and talk about those things so you're you are well on your way if nothing else so speaking of getting into that kind of stuff and i I did want to ask you before we really get into that what is your educational situation like? Are you do you do a homeschool program or some sort of alternative type of type of program, or are you in like a pro- public school, private school, charter school? Like what what is that? Uh, what does that look like? Because I know you do a lot of this kind of stuff uh, pretty frequently. So yeah, so I'm in a public school, really nothing fancy. I used to go to a charter school when I was a when I was like 
between the ages of like preschool and then like third grade, which I think gave me a little bit of a boost above my peers and kind of set me a little bit on the path. Also just having a good family that kind of valued me being able to read and such and got me interested. And I thank my grandma for that. But I go to a public school. Uh, I'm taking a lot of college classes, though. And I'm I'm just balancing like being in public education with all of this stuff that I'm trying to do, which means that it's hectic and I lack a social life quite a bit of the time. Again, par for the course for most libertarians. That's our our social life is Twitter and whoever we can get to join us on our podcast. So you're you're not doing too bad. Yeah, I, I think that's honestly kind of like one of the really good things. Like when you look at like people talking about there's too many libertarian podcasts or every libertarian has a podcast. Well, in the digital age where like where you where you're trying to connect with people who have like like minded viewpoints as you, if you're doing it in a digital age and you're sharing those conversations, it's just that's what that's essentially what these podcasts are. They're just people having conversations and you getting to listen to them. So I think it's just a really important and really great thing really i people say too many libertarian podcasts well every libertarian podcast is just a discussion and a conversation which is an important thing and we need to look at that and realize how much of a good thing that is so i don't know i don't think there's such a thing as too many libertarian podcasts see i kind of agree with that uh we i do a monday wednesday and friday morning show with a few friends of mine and one of the topics that we had talked about a few weeks ago was there was this article that talked about people having trouble socializing during the like COVID era and all of the pandemic and stuff. It's like, I feel like I've socialized possibly more. Uh, number one, my, like my actual personal friends, I've still talked to them and like, we still do stuff. And then on top of that, I've also met all of these crazy people online and do conversations like this on a regular basis. I mean, hell, the the three other guys that I do the morning show with kind of stemmed out of just socially interacting with people on Twitter and getting to meet people. Like if, if people are struggling with social engagement in the modern era, especially in the Zoom and StreamYard era, that's on them. That's that's not a like it's not a societal problem. It's a, it's a personal problem. Like the opportunities are wildly available for you to make new friends and be as social as you want to be. And, and even in the, with the comfort of knowing that you could just hit the end button and be done with the conversation. If you don't want to continue it, <laughs> I, I feel like we are in a unique position here that we can make these sort of connections. Oh, for sure. I, I don't think it like substitutes like a real in-person conversation. Of course, like go out, meet people, have conversations and things other than politics. Like, please. I, I realize that like I'm somebody who talks heavily about politics and to the point where my family just tells me, David, be a normal kid. Stop it. Just, just shut up and be a normal kid. And I find like I have some of my favorite conversations are things that don't involve politics at all, whether it's just like bumming around with my friends, being like a guy, you know, or it's just like talking like about Marvel movies or something because fitting I like talking about economics and I'm also a nerd. Who would have thought, you know, that's those sort of conversations. It's important to have actual conversations. Yeah, I see. I, I see that for sure. And it's not as bad as Jose, Jose's from No Way Jose. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow that man has a wife. I don't know. And that's just but, that's just one wall. <laughs> is what I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
All right. Well, I'll, I'll trust you that it's just that for now. But again, have those real conversations in real life. Certainly you can't replace them with a political conversations on a podcast. But again, podcasts, they can be really useful in like connecting with people who have similar viewpoints as you. So taking it from there, let's talk about how you did sort of get into all of this craziness because uh, you were pretty young when you started paying attention, I would say. And uh, honestly, you probably started paying attention about the time that a lot of people who otherwise didn't care about politics also started paying attention. And that was around 2016 or so. And I don't know what would have possibly been happening in the political landscape at that time that would get people interested. But why don't you, uh, why don't you kind of pick us up there around that time frame and what were your thoughts on what was going on in the world and specifically in U.S. politics? And how did that kind of lead you down this path from there? Oh, Lord. Well, I was a literal child then. I was like 12 like or something along those lines. Uh, 2016, you know, Trump versus Hillary. I was watching TV like every other kid does. And I'm seeing ads and they're talking about like Trump is literally Hitler. And I'm just like, we can't have literally Hitler as president. And so I was like, Hillary Clinton is going to win the election and Trump will never be president. I was like George Clooney that one time. He's like, Donald Trump will never be president, that we won't see a president Donald Trump, that sort of thing. I was totally that kid, which I probably shouldn't have been. I probably should have been a normal kid and totally not paying attention to any of that stuff. But I'm looking at all of this. And after the election, I I realized the world didn't collapse immediately after. So I was like, huh, what's going to go on now? And then I realized they lied about the Russia thing. So I was like, I hate the Democrats. So I kind of like hopped onto the Trump boat, mostly because I hated the Democrats above all things. And probably it's more like the enemy of the enemy is my friend. I don't know. I always kind of had like libertarian beliefs, kind of maybe not like extreme, like Austrian economics stuff, but like, you know, leave people alone. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Don't be the worst. Don't be a, be a decent individual. That was essentially my logic. And it pretty much just arose that I was just kind of like following along with Trump because I hated the Democrats and everything that they were whining and complaining about. I'm like, if that if it makes the Democrats angry, I'm going to root for that guy. But then eventually, eventually I get it I, by some wild chance. I get introduced to the Fed. And I'm like, the Fed is the biggest issue. And apparently Trump was talking about that in 2016. I found some old clips. I was like, Trump has got to end the Fed. And I'm just all on the Trump train for a while. And then we get to like COVID and I start really paying attention to politics because I'm angry at the people that have kind of taken away like a two years of my life. I was angry at them. And I'm sure most people would be angry at them. I was like, Trump, let that happen. Trump didn't do the things that I would have wanted him to do. So I kind of like jumped ship and I was kind of lost trying to figure out where I was going. And my dad was somebody who kind of like sometimes he'd watch part of the problem, right? And so I'm watching part of the problem. I'm like, dang, he is right about everything. Holy crap. And so I'm watching all of this and I slowly it kind of, I get introduced to Michael Malice via Tim Pool. That makes me hate the war machine. Cause like the first time he was on Tim Pool, he was talking about how they, the media lies to get us into wars, that whole narrative. So I'm introduced to Michael Malice, Dave Smith, I realized these two are doing episodes together. This is amazing. And I'm like, who's this mutual friend of theirs, this very failed podcaster, Tom Woods? And then I delve further into it. 
and that is and then just further through there i dive further into libertarian stuff until the point where like a little bit after the 2020 election i really hop onto like the libertarian party train and supporting like the mises caucus and so i joined the caucus and then i get on twitter and bon voyage here i am now somebody who enjoys economics probably way too much for my age group so that's how i got here 2016 was a lot of fun for me uh so i'm one of those idiots who's a a total stats junkie um so when a lot of these polls were coming out that were saying like 80 percent chance that hillary was going to win 90 percent chance hillary was going to win looking at all this polling data and being the like the dumbass junkie that I am for for the stats. Like I start digging into them and looking at these polls and looking at the way they're conducted and what their demographics are that they're pulling from. Like these might be some of the most skewed polls you could possibly pull. Like they completely ignore all of the demographics that would be Republican supporters or Trump supporters. Like there's there's no way this is right. So I, I never expected that Trump would win, but I didn't think it was going to be what it was being painted as. Like I thought there was going to be uh, a lot more pushback, and I, I thought it was going to be a lot closer than what the polls were saying. And then when he won, it, uh, then after that, then I really started looking at at the numbers and the stats and digging into like where did it happen and why did it happen, and it was pretty pretty insane. Uh, but you brought up a really Good point, which is what we're going to talk about today, and that is the Fed. And I hit you with a few articles that we uh, we both pro- can probably agree are just like the absolute worst possible articles to uh, to read if you want legitimate information about <laughs> about inflation. But so let's uh let's start to dig into inflation a little bit. Why don't you give us the uh, like the Cliff Notes version of your findings and understanding of inflation and the Fed's role in that as you've kind of been figuring things out. So inflation, to broadly describe inflation, it is the overall raising of prices based upon an increase in the monetary supply. This is because the the amount of goods remains stagnant while the monetary supply increases. So like over the pandemic, was it's a perfectly... It's a perfect opportunity to explain it here. Goods aren't being made, but the Fed's printing money. Well, through a process far too complex to really go into right now that involves them buying treasury bonds and fractional reserve banking, and where the Fed creates money. Essentially, they do create money by buying these bonds, putting it out into the market, and the, the money increasing over the same amount of goods means that the value of your dollar is worth less. It's simple supply and demand. If the supply goes up, the demand is going to go down for that dollar, right? So the increase of the monetary supply is what lends itself to inflation. And right now, we're dealing with inflation from when Trump was president. When he signed, you know, two of the $2 trillion relief plans and all those bills, and the Fed was keeping interest rates near 0%, because Trump was trying to save his economy after that bubble popped. So we're dealing with Trump's inflation. This means it's only going to get worse when you have people like Biden stepping in with like more $2 trillion bills, 
constantly being spent and no real way to pay for them because we're always running def deficits and the Fed monetizes the debt. So right now, we're just dealing with only a little, we're dealing with like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to inflation. And we're just going to keep dealing with more. And the government is not going to go and deal with it because if they were going to deal with it, it would, it would result in a lot of people losing their jobs because they get voted out pretty quickly. And, and no, that's probably well on its way anyway. But uh, that's, that's so something that you had kind of touched on there was talking about the fact that we did spend a decent portion of 2020 with nothing being made. Uh, so this this CNN article, it doesn't do a completely terrible job of kind of getting some of the generic basics of inflation and and at least to some degree why we've gotten here. Uh, moderately correct, but I mean, the way they their prescription for it is terrible. But, you know, it does talk about like how uh, in 2020, the the automotive or the auto industry, for example, and and this was so at the time I was working for a plastics company that primarily produced for auto manufacturers. And we saw them shutting down early on, like really, really quick, right out the gate. Uh, before before like sweeping lockdowns were happening, they were starting to shut down and dial back orders. So. So this was like this was happening in the auto industry, especially early on. Uh, so then, you know, but then what it talks about is how after all of these uh, stimulus, I don't, the, the, it wasn't the stimulus packages per se at that time, but they were giving the extra unemployment benefits and, and all of this stuff while people were being locked down, while people were being laid off. Uh, it drove the auto industry, especially used cars, uh, just through the roof. And so, so then the automotive industries are, are having to turn around and start firing stuff back up after they had shut down. Uh, so it, it created this giant lag. And so some of what you're seeing, like, like yes, yeah, some of what you're seeing is market-driven with the supply and demand side of things. But that's such a small percentage in the grand scale of of the inflation that we're seeing. Like you said, like that's that's that tip of the iceberg. That's a, the uh, at this point in our modern economy, supply and demand is such a small portion of of inflation and what's going on in in prices going up that it's it's hard to with any with any level of reasonability prescribe that as an actual part of the problem. Does that does that sound pretty good or is it relatively yeah. accurate? I mean Yeah, yeah. That's not that is that that makes that really does explain a lot of things. And like the used car thing really does kind of debunk like that Elizabeth Warren thing. Like it's all corporate greed. When it's really like what corporation is selling old used cars? That's gonna be your old junkers in the lots and that's gonna be small automotive dealerships. They don't got corporate greed, nor do they have a large enough market to be able to justify hiking up prices for absolutely no reason. So there's got to be clearly an issue here that's underlying there besides like just this corporate greed you want to point to. And in a time when like profit margins are so thin and I, I, I don't reasonably see it as just corporate greed, really. 
they they don't make enough of a profit as it is and with with prices rising on everything then it's just gonna it's gonna hurt everyone in the process see that's an interesting thing coming from having some retail background like the the amount of money that they make on the average retail sale like the the markup on that is not extravagant and when you take into account insurance uh loss which loss is from theft stuff getting broken what have you like at the end of the day the the uh the margin from you know purchase to sale is really kind of negligible like the reason that these companies are making these huge profits is not because of corporate greed it's because the government shut down all their competition and funneled all of the business to them like it's it is a volume sale number not a margin number and that which you know i, I come from an, an agricultural background and a plastics background and those are both the same way like you don't make a lot of money buying and selling grain you don't make a lot of money selling plastic because your margins are so high you make that money because of the volume that you turn over in the product and it's the same way in the retail markets like they're not making money hand over fist on each individual sale they're making those massive profits because they are generating sale on top of sale on top of sale and it's all because the government shut down all of their competition and funneled all the business straight to them uh, but yeah it's all corporate greed is the problem oh yeah definitely not at all the fact that the, that the fed has printed 40 percent of all dollars in circulation in the past 18 months not that at all not that at all and that's like that's something that uh largely is not understood like the fact that for your age you have a really good understanding of kind of how this works and the mechanics behind it and, and how it operates like, i would say most people my age don't even understand that like the just the general ignorance of how basic markets and monetary policy work in this country it's truly a testament to a job well done by uh public education to keep people dumb and keep people unaware of the the truth of how how their world actually operates so that they don't get pissed off at the correct people for the problems they they get pissed off at uh billionaires who have literally nothing to do with how much money that you or i have Oh, yeah. And then it's just this. It's because the government has this necessity to maintain this like Keynesian economic general theory, you know, modern monetary theory. They need to keep that as what's going on. You know, this Keynesian notion that if the government spends more and consumers are spending more, that's when the economy is doing good. When the GDP is high, not when like savings are high, not when the value of your dollar is going down. No, it has to be rising, steady rising prices and constant spending. That's why they promote the Fed. That's why they don't tell you how the Fed actually works as far as like it's it's open market operations. The like FOMO, I think it's no free the the free open market um, operations, yeah, FOMO. Those would be the, that would that's the that's like the part of the Fed that has all of the all of the power. They just print money, 
set buy off treasury bonds from the member banks that are connected to it, then they go and multiply that money via fractional reserve banking. You know. Well, and like the fact that the their stated goal is two percent inflation every year. And that's what their stated goal is, but they don't really tell you what it what they're actually pumping out. They they claim that right now we're around six or seven percent, but a lot of things a lot of the metrics would seem to indicate that it's probably closer to double that. Uh, and like for their 2% goal every year, if you go back and look year over year, a lot of the actual metrics and the, the data on that would show that it's probably double or triple that year over year. Like they, like anything else that the government does, like they, they set their goals and they tell you what it is and then they lie about it to make it seem like they're, they're meeting their goals when they're actually nowhere even remotely close to it. That way they can continue to, or if there is a problem that they do admit to, it's uh, what's the, oh shoot, what's the term they've used for inflation for a number of Transitory years? Transitory inflation. Transitory, yeah. And I'll, they can fix it. They just need more money so that they can fix it. They just need to print more money and they need to keep the interest rates down. That way they can get it back under control and they'll get it all worked out. Never mind that none of the things that they suggest to fix it are actually uh, reasonably going to work towards fixing anything. Yeah. And then you just look at the problem. Like then there's these strange people who want to call themselves economists saying that if we spend $2 trillion more trillion, it's going to fix inflation. It'll actually bring inflation down. It'll save us money. It'll lower your prices. Spending, putting $2 trillion more trillion out into the market without hiking up taxes. What was the uh, what was the article? Why inflation is good? Oh Lord! Well, that's been that's that isn't even like just an article that was put out. And they've been saying inflation is good for a long time. At least saying at least like a a steady inflation is a good thing. Like we haven't looked at the Colonial or the Weimar Mark. If we haven't looked at all those and realized that inflation is inherently bad, the Venezuelan dollar, I don't know what they call it down there. I don't know what their currency is, but those are all just blatant signs of inflation not being a good thing. But we're taught that the steady rising of prices and the increase in the monetary supply is good for Americans. We don't want we don't want dropping prices. We don't want your dollar gaining value in, while it sits in its savings account. We can't have that. Well, here we go. I found the uh, I, I found the one that I looked at back a while ago. Whenever it came up, when it first came out, uh, <laughs> pull this up right quick. From our good friends over at CNN Business, why inflation can actually be good for everyday Americans and bad for rich people. See, as long as they as long as they spin it that it's bad for rich people, then average everyday Americans think that that means it's good for them, and usually whenever you do get into the metrics of it, it's never actually bad for rich people because usually rich people have the means to, uh, to weather whatever inflation happens to be. And it's the everyday Americans who actually can't, but they'll, they will spin it however they can to, uh, to make yeah, it and it's, it's bad for, Bad for the rich people, so that means it's good for you. 
Oh yeah, it's a total racket with this, with this whole logic here. Because like the vast majority of people who are rich, they're a lot of what their wealth is held in is assets. Assets just gain value because of inflation. They don't carry actual dollars. So all that inflation's gonna affect those like stock prices and all of those asset prices, all the gold, all of all of what they're holding is just gonna keep going up. Because that's what they're primarily what their wealth is held in. Not to mention that the vast majority of the connected wealthy class just gets these free handouts before inflation really sets in. So that way they get to spend the money and buy those assets before the money gets down to the rest of us and inflation has kicked in and has hurt our wallets. Here's a the beautiful example that they use for this article is they talk about the 30-year fixed mortgage and how inflation is actually good in that case because you have your 30-year fixed mortgage and that means your prior your monthly rent or monthly mortgage payment stays the same month to month while inflation means that your uh, that your income is going up so you're making more money but your your mortgage payment stays the same never mind that inflation has been driving the price of a house up so much over the last 20 to 30 years that the average person can't actually afford to buy one. Or once they do, then inflation going up all around you, your mortgage might be staying the same, but everything else around you is going up faster than what your your uh, wages are. And so now you can't afford to, to pay your mortgage because you're having to put that money towards just putting food on the table. And that's why, like, of the, uh, like it says, I think 11 trillion of America's 15 trillion in debt is uh, made up in mortgages. Uh, yet you have people like filing for bankruptcy and homes being foreclosed on at record rates. If inflation was really good for those people who have these mortgages, wouldn't people be paying off those mortgages, not going into bankruptcy and foreclosure? Yeah, like the whole like logic of taking debt because that can be good for you when inflation hits really only applies if you are taking in massive amounts of debt and you are experiencing incredibly high like hyperinflation to the point like, you know, where you're at like the Weimar Germany levels at that point, you know, you have barrels of cash coming around. That's pretty much where you're where that logic will will apply otherwise it doesn't work otherwise you're not going to keep be able to keep up enough with your rising prices you've just taken in a bunch of debt and the prices aren't going up enough for you to be able to keep keep paying that off and it's and it's not getting printed out of the out of the way for you you know you this logic doesn't really apply here and it's just going to help the wealthy really because again assets maintain their value the dollar doesn't. Most people are holding dollars, not assets, if they have savings at all. They don't have savings, then you don't have anything at all to invest in to hedge against inflation. And those dollars that you're going to be getting, they're going to be keep losing their value. They're going to be useless. That's why the dollar's lost 96% of its value since 1913. That was... I'm glad you brought up uh, assets and like stuff like that. 
So I'm sure you've seen this kind of gets away from the inflation stuff, but it stays on the the, uh, the monetary policy and economic side of things. I'm sure you saw the thing where um, Elizabeth Warren very incorrectly said that that Elon Musk didn't pay any taxes because and and they make this they make this claim fairly frequently when talking about the the ultra rich because a lot of them don't have a they don't have a corporate salary their entirety of the entirety of their wealth is uh, accumulated in assets in stocks in what have you so so technically Elizabeth Warren may have been correct. Elon Musk may not have paid anything in on his income tax because he does not take an income. He, all of his money is, or all of his wealth is tied up in, in, in his investments and in his, uh, in his holdings and his companies and his actual assets that he owns. And when you look at that side of stuff, he paid more in, he paid more in taxes in one year than what, you and me and Elizabeth Warren will combine for our entire lives. But, you know, so would you, would you care to maybe touch on, on that side of things a little bit like the, the disconnect between uh, income from say a job versus like the way that a lot of these big corporations and, and their owners kind of take their, salaries in the in the way of uh stock holdings and, and assets and stuff like that oh yeah well it's a, it's a perfect way of like hedging against inflation in that respect because again assets maintain their value if your company is successful enough like you know tesla or spacex those prices are just going to keep going up and if you want that money if you want actual access to money since you're not taking a salary you got to sell those and pay capital gains tax you know you know, that, that sort of logic here. He's still paying taxes. It's just not through the income tax because he's not getting conventional salary in that respect. He's essentially hedging all of his profits and all that income that he could be taking in and hedging that into investing into his business. That's essentially how it's working. And then there's also like a further dishonesty here when you look at it like Elizabeth Warren. She also quoted him not paying any income tax from two years ago. Two years ago is how where she's quoting this. So I don't know, because like clearly this year he's going to pay a massive amounts of ta amount of taxes because he's going to be taking in some income, also paying capital gains tax on all of that Tesla stock he sold. Because I know Bernie was being the worst, and he was just like on Twitter, he's like, "Hey, should I just sell some Tesla stock?" What a what a dude! What a man! See, this was um, you had opened with, uh, or I had goaded you into opening with the the stuff about Trump and and twenty sixteen, you know, and they talked about like uh, what's his, Warren Buffett, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and like he had released his his tax statements, and why wouldn't Trump release his tax statements? Well, Warren Buffett's the CEO of a massive corporation, like he takes a huge annual salary. Uh, Plus, he has all of his stock holdings and everything else that he can claim and show. Whereas Trump is the sole owner of Trump Enterprises and, and all of the different assortment of things that are involved in that. Like his his tax, his tax returns are not 
as not quite as simple and cut and dry. And they're not going to make sense to the average person who looks at them because the average person who looks at them is literally on a scene of W-2. They don't understand how a private entity and the way that like growing up on a farm, like the way uh, the way farm taxes are done is if you if you can claim profit on some part of the farm, but then you can turn around and reinvest that profit back into the farm for other things. Uh, you know, being a private business owner, you have the ability to it legally evade taxes by reinvesting into your own business. Warren Buffett does not have that option as the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Like that's not, that's not something that he can legally do and get away with it anyway. Uh, so like, that always rubbed me the wrong way how people would always try to compare those apples and oranges when it's not even remotely close. And that's the same way. That's the same stuff that you start seeing with Bezos and, and Elon Musk and, and some of these big multi-billionaires is the average person just has absolutely no understanding of how that side of the business world works in any way. And it, it's, it's a shame really, but I mean, that's, that's the, the world we live in. Yeah. And then they also use like the whole where they're not paying taxes as if it's something that I should look at and be upset with. I'm just like, how do we how, teach us your secrets, Mr. Trump? Teach us how to not have to pay any taxes. His money's not going towards committing like war crimes in Yemen. I'll take it. Uh, you know, I, I want to learn. I remember there was that very there were, there were at Romney said something about. 47% of people don't pay their don't pay any income tax and then Ron Paul was just like how do we get the how do we get the other 53 to not have to pay any it's the same logic here i'm perfectly fine if you're trying to convince me that they're a bad person because they're not paying any income tax that has the reverse effect if you're not paying income tax i, I don't know i'm more inclined to be a fan of you, that your money's not going towards a total war machine yeah, I always kind of wonder what person is looking at that and saying, oh, they're not paying any income tax. That's terrible. They should be paying way more instead of looking at it and saying, oh, what's the what's the secret here? How can I get out of paying mine, too? Like, I, I also don't like paying taxes. Maybe maybe there's some trick that I'm not looking at. And, but for some reason, that's that's not the way at least nobody on the left. That's not the way any of them are. They're wired to. They're not paying taxes. They need to pay triple taxes instead of they're not paying taxes. Maybe I shouldn't be paying taxes either. Right? Like let's let's have an equal playing field for everybody. Like nobody pays taxes. That's what I want to see. Yeah, and then I see like they're they're constantly bringing up the fact that like Trump has lots of failed businesses. When I heard some, I saw some wild conspiracy theory on Twitter, like how he invests like a million dollars into these businesses, and then they intentionally go out of business because then he gets massive tax returns because they completely crashed and went to zero. And it's just, I don't know, maybe the man's a secret genius somehow. I'm not totally sure how this all adds up as far as like what happens when his business goes under not totally sure there but maybe there's like some secret genius in him failing all of his businesses to scam the tax system i mean when you're a multi-billionaire you have the flexibility to take risks on some like people have talked about his casinos that have failed casinos are not just some like money generating venture like a lot of casinos fail that's that's not something that's new or unusual 
So the fact that he had the money to invest into it and to like to take a gamble on something like that, anytime they would talk about all of his failed businesses, I'm like, yeah, uh, when you're richer than God, you have that option. Like you can roll the dice on some questionable business ventures that if they pay off, you might make another four billion. And if they don't, you're out a few hundred million and you know, you write that off on your tax as a, you know, as a business loss on the taxes and you don't have to pay any taxes on it. And then you get to move on to something else. Like that's if uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like if that's, if the game is set up in that manner, you, you play by the rules that are laid out for you. And uh, like, that's people who get mad because other people are better at playing by the rules. is insane to me. Yeah, it's like being upset at like Michael Jordan for being a good basketball player because you're not very good and you can't score any threes nor dunk because you're just that short. Sorry. It's that it's like that same logic, being upset at them because they just are better at what they're doing here. They know how to play the game. They're more strategic than you, you know, being mad at a chess player because they're able to defeat you. You know, same kind of logic here. People being needlessly upset that hey, they, they're doing better. I don't know. Like they, like greed, greed is an interesting thing when combined with like giving people actual power. But if as far as it's like greed and like a capitalist system, the way you, you the way you be, earn money and benefit people is you provide a good or service and hope that people want it. You know, like it's the best form of greed that I've got to say is around, you know, you can't unless you're just some government monopoly and you claim the exclusive right to do something or you're the only one who can provide a service or you force someone with the end of at the end of a gun to do something then otherwise you can't provide that you you can't force people to do that they can choose they have to choose to give you their money you know unlike the government of course and see i think that gets into an interesting thing at least with the mindset of most of those on the left is that they are mad that it's not a government entity that is providing that to everybody. And then, then nobody, and I guess in their opinion, nobody should be making money off of that. It should all be done as a public service to some extent, uh, which if we, if we haven't learned anything from COVID, it's the one thing that everybody should have figured out. Is that anytime the government tries to provide any level of a service, they're gonna fuck it up royally. <laughs> Pardon my French. Hey man, perfectly fine with me here. But um, yeah, the government's incompetence is probably the mo- probably the most glaring thing to most normal people with COVID. And like, if there's one way to really bridge the gap from being someone who's okay with the government and who abs to somebody who absolutely hates it. It's what, it's what happened here. You know, they forcefully destroyed businesses. I mean, they propped them up and then they forcefully popped a bubble underneath your feet, tricking a lot of business owners, but it, it teaches you a lesson about trust in the government and their use of and behavior with the monetary system. So let's kind of pivot back as we, uh, come in on the tail or the uh, the home stretch for this. Let's pivot back a little bit to inflation. Um, what do you see or maybe think has the potential for being the solution or what's the next step that the government might take 
that they claim is a solution? So, as far as the government, as far as their response, that relies mostly on the Fed. And as well as, like, increasing taxes. It's not pretty. Because as long as they keep monetizing the, the debt, you know, turning into U.S. Treasury bonds... The Fed buys treasury bonds from banks, increases the monetary supply. As long as they keep monetizing the debt, we're going to only see inflation get worse and worse and worse. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck for a while. It's going to suck. Because right now, uh, we just have more inflation coming down the barrel right now from low interest rates from the Fed and the endless money printing over COVID. That's, that's all we're seeing. So if the Fed wants to fight interest rates, wants to fight it, then they need to raise interest rates first off. They need to raise them severely. And right now the system is drunk on easy money. Essentially, the Fed keeps liquoring up the economy, which distracts it from the actual problems that are wrong with the market. All this money's being invested in the projects that are unsustainable and that have no future. So if they raise interest rates even just a little bit, it's going to cause an economic crash again. It's going to put us further into the pits because you become so drunk. It's essentially like pouring a bucket of water onto the drunk. Same logic here. It's that crash. So if they want to really fight inflation, they need to massively crank up interest rates, you know, buying back those U.S. Treasury bonds to lower the monetary supply in the market, force banks to keep more in their reserves, loan out less, you know. Right now, uh, bank reserves are at 0%. They don't have to keep – it used to be 10% for the longest time, but now it's 0%. They dropped that during COVID. Like just before all the all of the lockdowns started, they put out a press release and then kind of hit it in the back. Bob Murphy talks about this in his lecture, Understanding Monetary Mechanics from the Mises Institute, that they dropped reserve ranks to practically zero to, – to, to actually 0%, as in banks don't have to hold the money that they owe you you know fed the loaner of last resort in that case so if they want to fight inflation they need to stop monetizing the debt which means they need to raise taxes that's unpopular or they need to crank and or they need to crank up interest rates to stop the inflow of credit into the system which is also unpopular because it'll cause an automatic economic debt downturn so the fed said it's going to raise the interest rates like maybe 10 times by 0.25 percent you know up to about two and a half percent by the time probably 2024. Uh, that will cause an economic crash. So I, I doubt that the Fed's actually going to do it. They're not going to actually follow through on this. They're going to probably double down, and we're going to see probably the crack up boom that Rothbard predicted. Is in when they double down, hyperinflation insert ensues. Uh, the debt base, the, the national debt will become worthless because we'll reach Weimar Germany levels. And, you know, hyperinflation in sets, we essentially default on everything because the dollar is not worthless. So I don't think there's a real solution that we're going to see from the federal government. If you, as, an, as a consumer, want to, that would be you'd want to find inflation hedges, which I'm not going to suggest any because, again, I'm not prepared to give financial advice, nor am I probably legally able to give financial advice. It's interesting that you mentioned the... The, the very minute percentage that they're talking about raising interest rates and the number of times over the next how I can't remember is it is it over the next two or or five years it, 
nonetheless, like you said, it would create a significant economic downturn. And the biggest problem with that is even after they've made all of those interest rate raises or increases, they're probably halfway to where they need to be to actually fix anything. Like if even if even halfway to where they need to be to actually fix the problem that they've created over the last 30 years. <laughs> hey, hey, sorry, my my earbuds aren't working real quick for a sec here. So I haven't been able to hear you for that, for just that little span. I'm sorry. It's just, it's not connecting for some reason. Uh, oh no, you're, one you're second good. Uh, here, just see. Um, is it going to stay connected? Let's see here. Is that working now? Okay. So what I said was that either after they make all of these incremental increases in the interest rates over the next two to five years, however long it is, they're still only about halfway, if even halfway, to where they would need to be to make a realistic dent in turning inflation back. Like the, the, that's the, the minuscule amount of increase that those 10, uh, 10, incre- 10 incremental increases make doesn't even sway this at all. Like that's, that's the big problem with their, their plan for correcting it. Oh yeah, and if you look at it, if even if they crank it up to two point five percent with inflation, like if we're just going to use the government's number of seven point five, and they crank it up to two point five, that's still still negative five percent essentially interest rates. So you're not going to be fighting any inflation. You're still going to be dealing with more inflation unless they massively crank up interest rates, which will destroy everything in its path. We're in a messy scenario. Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the uh, the only solution. I, I guess the only solution that I see to the problem as it currently stands is you almost have to deliberately tank the entire system and uh, maybe not even create a second recession. Like, might have to completely create a second depression and. Uh, just to just to uh, level things back out to a point that you can kind of start from scratch and try to get it right, like because you're not gonna you're not gonna turn it back over time. There, there's you, you don't have enough time to incrementally turn it back in the other direction, especially not with the national debt being what it is. Oh, yeah, for sure. This isn't going to be pretty at all. And I hope that it happens during a Democrat president, you know, some socialist or something. So that way we can blame it all on socialist policies. That would be that would be great if we could just blame it on them. So I hope the recession or depression or whatever it is happens during them. And then they decide and then they get voted out of office and we can put some laissez faire candidate in there who will hopefully do nothing and let the market correct itself, because that was the biggest problem with the Great Depression of 1929 to 1945. Yeah, touch hit on that real briefly. Explain what you mean by that was the biggest problem because I know what you mean, but I, I want you to. So the government intervention into this, we need to let markets correct themselves, you know, properly allocate resources to where they properly need to go for the correct supply of goods that Americans actually need and correctly are able to invest in. When the government steps in and interferes with that, it throws off the entire market. It, do- it demolishes everything it's doing. 
FDR's policies, the use some UCLA economists found that his policies increased the length of the Great Depression by an additional seven years. Just all of his all of his plans, though a lot of them were eventually struck down, and the depression only ended because we massively deregulated the market following the World War II. And a lot of people will dispute that. will say, like, it's the Great Depression. We couldn't have fought that. Well, there's the there's the one of 1920 that we did nothing for because Hoover didn't act. I don't. Th- I think it was Hoover. Uh, he didn't act fast enough to respond to it. So the market was able to correct itself pretty quickly. And at the beginning, it had a deeper it had a deeper trajectory dip than the Great Depression. But since we did nothing, it corrected itself pretty quickly. And we got that nice boom afterwards when the Fed started lowering interest rates again. Uh, so then the Federal then the Federal Reserve does all their policies again, Great Depression. Uh, and then we're supposed to take it as proof that the government intervention actually corrected all of this. When in reality, if if, if it happened the other way, if government intervention had corrected it in about a year and then we had done nothing and the Great Depression had lasted an extra seven years, what do you think they would be saying? They'd be saying government intervention would, would be the solution, right? Otherwise, looking at that, it's the reverse here. Our non-intervention in the markets allows the market to correct itself. And FDR's policies were also total garbage because he was just demolishing goods and trying to inflate prices when people didn't have jobs. Well, and then you saw the same thing in 2008, 2009 with the housing bubble popping and everything else and the and the recession and everything that came out of that. Like, Whenever that happened at the onset of it, I was like, okay, this is a good thing. This this is a market correction that needs to happen. This is going to kind of level things, you know, level the playing field, get everything back on an even keel, and then it can rebuild itself from here correctly. In steps the government bails out and you know we have all the too big to fail bailouts everything that comes out of that and it sets us on the course that we've been on literally ever since like everything kind of that we're seeing today is carryover from 2008 2009 and all of the government overreaction to the recession and the housing bubble popping yeah, and not to mention bankers just manipulating the entire population to not actually see the real problem. Like you see Peter Schiff go down and talk to the Occupy Wall Street people, which, by the way, wonderful little video I've seen. Well, not little video. It's two hours long of him talking to these people. But it's a wonderful video. And he goes down and tries to explain how it's the Fed and how them, it's the government bailing out the, bailing out the banks. And it's them having power. That's the problem. After that, you start seeing all the woke stuff enter everything. And soon, like the next year, you see JP Morgan with their gay pride float going down the streets of New York City in the same place where Occupy Wall Street used to be. It's because the banks are distracting from all this crap. The Federal Reserve, they can invest in whatever it is they want because they essentially have like, so they have an infinite amount of money. They can pay whatever propagandists they want, invest. They realize that all this woke stuff is a really good distraction from the actual problems, which is why Occupy Wall Street collapsed, and we're dealing with all this woke stuff because they're trying to cover up for the fact that they got bailed out and that they caused the they caused the bailout after the Tea Party folks started going down to talk to the Occupy Wall Street people. Yeah, the the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street folks, they were on the right track with certain things, but both movements sort of fizzled out for varying reasons. Uh, 
the Tea Party, I don't think, was super well organized or actually all that economically literate. They just saw what the problem was and knew that it was a problem. And then uh, I think to some extent that was probably also the the failing of the Occupy Wall Street types. They they saw what the problem was and they they knew what it was. They just didn't have a, a good solution for it. So what we need is more people like uh, like you who are young and and understand how this stuff works and not only who see what the problem is but kind of understand what the legitimate solutions are and maybe have a plan as we move forward in the future to get us out of that rut because uh i'm pretty well giving up hope on my generation i think we're all a bunch of morons uh with the hand with with the exception of the handful that i talk to regularly on twitter Hey, I would have more hope. I don't know. Um, looking at it, Trump doesn't have a solution to inflation if he were to come back into office. Biden certainly doesn't have a have a solution. You can see he's just planning to do the exact opposite and double down on all of his problems, especially with the gas tax holiday, which unless you suspend the gas tax for all time, it's just going to make problems worse. Um, but uh, that gives us a really good opportunity to step in and time to be really hopeful because we have the solutions we actually can point to what the real problem is and it's the government you know and the federal reserve doing all of this nonsense we can look to the actual problem we can point that out and offer a real solution so i think it's i think we should be hopeful that we actually have the solutions and people have to start listening to us like whether it's through like the libertarian party like i would like to choose or if it's through like Tho Bishop getting on Steve Bannon's war room and such and getting to talk about all of that stuff and make it so that the populist right knows what the solutions are. All of these are good steps. Trump doesn't actually have a solution right now unless he embraces something like what is a libertarian position, unless he actually adopts that. I don't know. I think, I think we should be hopeful. And I've been preaching about the Federal Reserve since I learned about it, man. I have been preaching about it. Like I'm, I'm taking a college world history course. Well, American history course. Whenever I get the chance to talk about economic recessions, I'm always like, it's because of fractional reserve banking or poor monetary policy, or it's a central bank. And I know I'm trying to get it through the heads of all of my peers. The fed is the problem. So I'm trying my best as far as that goes. Well, more power to you. Hopefully you can actually make some inroads with some of your peers and hopefully some of my peers will listen to this as well and get a little better understanding and start to start to maybe pay attention to some of that stuff and figure out where the problems are coming from. David, give all your plugs and then we'll uh, call this a wrap. All righty. Well, you can find me on Twitter. It's listed right there on my little picture there. You can follow it there rather than trying to explain and spell it out there. I also, my link tree is in my bio. Hi, Sophia. Um, uh, I have my link tree in my Twitter bio. You can find all my stuff there. I have the YouTube channel, Road to Providence. Same thing on Odyssey. You can find it all there. If you want to support on Odyssey, be sure to follow so that way I can actually get that follower count up. And that way, in case I have a guest on that gets me banned somehow, I don't know. I don't know. It's just how it works here. So I got YouTube. I got Odyssey. You can find me there. You can also find me on Twitter, like right there. That's my that's my handle. Also, Gab. You can also find me there because, I don't know, I got on there at some point. I don't know. It seems like it's more free speech and like parlor or whatever the truth social thing is. So you can find me there. But that's those are my plugs. Yeah. 
Well, David, thank you very much. This has been very fun, and it's really cool to talk to somebody who knows so much at such a young age. Like, I keep coming back to it now, but like we were talking about before the show, like, my son's 13. He knows pretty much whatever he knows from listening to podcasts sitting in my office with me uh, and definitely doesn't take the time to read and research and study stuff in depth. So hopefully there are, and, and honestly, I do have hope because I do know that there are a lot more like you out there. Like, so, so that is a, a little bit of a, a white pill for the, for the future. Maybe, maybe hope is not entirely lost and, and your generational lead us out of the shit show that mine is kind of allowed to continue. Um, yeah, it's just be hopeful people being like black filled and being pessimistic about everything. Not going to get you anywhere. It's only through like being hopeful that we are going to win because you know, the good guys win. Every story goes like that. The good guys win. You have to be optimistic. We're going to win. It's going to, it might hurt. It might be difficult, but we're going to win in the long term. So be hopeful. We're going to win. And the fed, you know, check out Mises.org or something. Absolutely. Check out Mises.org. And uh, in the meantime, I hope everybody has a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week. And I will be back on Monday with a brand new episode that I talk about uh, something. Actually, I've got a couple ideas for Monday's topic, so I'll see which one of them I end up running with. And then we will be back next Tuesday with another Tuesday night live stream. And I had a good topic for that that I wrote down because I knew I would forget it. And uh, I've got a couple guests I got to ask about coming on for that one because i i've got uh i think i'm gonna have some fun with these tuesday night live streams so join us again next tuesday 7 30 p.m central and until then hope everybody has a great one catch you later